Hey, my name is Parker Manuel, pastor of Pinewood Church in Boulder, Colorado, where our mission is to meet people where they are and point them to Jesus. Hope you enjoy today's podcast. My name is Parker Manuel, pastor here at Pinewood, and we are continuing our series through John. We kicked it off last weekend. We're studying chapter by chapter for 21 weeks, the book of John. We're going to be talking about John chapter 2 today, the wedding of Cana, the wedding of Cana. One of the special privileges that I have as a pastor is I get to officiate weddings. And I remember kind of coming into the ministry. I knew that weddings, funerals, special ceremonies, these are the types of things that uh, pastors get invited into. And what a special privilege. I mean, you get invited into just one of the most special moments of someone's life, and you get to show up and join them together. And I remember talking to my pastor as I was going into ministry, preparing for my first wedding, and I said, anything I should know about? I was pulling together all the different outlines, trying to figure out what I was doing, and he said, one thing for sure you need to know about. As the officiant, you need to be ready for anything. He said, you need to be prepared for everything. And I didn't exactly know what he meant, but the reality is when you officiate weddings, you're not just the pastor. Sometimes you're also the DJ. I've been a photographer. I've been an EMT, uh, a family therapist. I've been an Uber driver. Yeah, that one's kind of expected. Yeah, I've been an Uber driver. Uh, a shoulder to cry on, and a pastor. Got to officiate a wedding. My first wedding that I showed up to, uh, right out of the gate, this became true. Um, I show up expecting to find a wedding planner, you know, and I had my notes. I was like, tell me where to stand. What's the plan? And I show up, and everybody's just kind of wondering around. And I start walking to a couple people. I'm like, it kind of looks like the wedding's get coming up. Should we, should we line up? I don't know. I feel like there's something we should do. And um, nobody knew what to do. And so finally, I went over to the uh, bride and the groom, the people that were getting married. I was just like, hey, is, do you need help with anything? Can I? And they were like, well, we were just kind of waiting f- for you. <laughs> I'm like, for me, for what? The plan. I was like, oh, no. This is. So this is why we had rehearsal. So I was the plan. I was the plan, and I got to be the wedding planner that day. Thankfully, it all came together. But the tr- same is true here in John chapter 2 of Jesus. We see Jesus in many different roles at a wedding. So let's look at this together. John chapter 2. We're going to read the first 12 verses together. It says, On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, They don't have any wine. What does this have to do with you and me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now six stone jars had been set there for the Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the 
brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. When the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and he told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first, then after people are drunk, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum together with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they stayed there only a few days. Let's pray and then we'll dive in. Father, we need you today. God, I ask that your Holy Spirit is the teacher. Father, empty me of myself. I don't want to say anything that is not true of your word. I'm in desperate need of your Holy Spirit to do the talking today. Father, we know that as your word goes out, it accomplishes the purpose for which it is sent. We know that it will have success. Father, more than anything, I, I just pray for the one that's in here today that does not have a personal relationship with you. God, I, I ask right now that even like during the worship, during the teaching of the word, right now, Father, that you would draw them in, that their hearts would be stirred towards you, and that today would be the most important decision that they ever make in putting their faith and trust in you. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, a little bit of background. This, the author of this book is John. It is, after all, the gospel of John. This is the disciple who Jesus loved. Wouldn't you like to have that title? I am the disciple whom Jesus loved. You are the disciple who Jesus loves. But this was his title in the Word. The entirety of the gospel of John, like the purpose of the book, is to reveal uh, God's identity and his divinity and the significance of how much God loves the world and how he brings you life. And so we see miracles in here. And what we really see through the thread throughout all of the gospel of John is John showing us how much Jesus loves us and how we can have a personal relationship with him. Gospel of John is unique. You know, it's, it's not, uh, specifically this passage is unique. It's only mentioned in the Gospel of John, and it's not mentioned in the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Synoptic meaning uh, similar in, in wording and structure and content. This is a unique uh, story that's in the Bible. Over the Gospels, the four Gospels, we see Jesus performing 37 miracles. There's only seven recorded here, so much fewer miracles, but each one incredibly significant. There's something special about a first. Here we see the title is the first sign. This is the story of Jesus going to a wedding and he turns water into wine. This is the first sign. This is the first miracle. There's something special about a first. First time you eat Rocky Road ice cream. First time you go on a, learn how to ride a bike. First mission trip. There is something special about a, a first. You remember the first, and there's something significant. There's something really profound here. I remember reading this story growing up, 
And if you, if you just kind of read it as you're just kind of skimming through the Bible, you're like, okay, Jesus is at a wedding. Oh, wow, that's really cool. He turns water into wine. That's a neat miracle. That's pretty radical. But oftentimes you don't really think that much more of it other than that's really cool. I wonder why he did that. Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. There's a deeper meaning. There's more significance in it than we realize. That's why we're going to take just a little bit of time to try to extract and to try to understand as much as we can about why is this Jesus first? Why is this the first miracle? The first is special. The first is significant. That's the title of the message. Something about the first. There's something really special here. So here are the three roles that Jesus is mentioned. He's mentioned as Jesus the guest, Jesus the son, and Jesus the host. The first is Jesus the guest. Let's work through this systematically. It says here, on the third day. This is a reference to three days after his encounter in the previous chapter with Philip and Nathaniel. This isn't the third day of the wedding. This is the, on the third day as Jesus is beginning his ministry and beginning to gather his disciples. It is possible that it is specifically mentioned here as a reference because as we talked about before, this is a sign. This is pointing towards something. There could be some significance with it being the third day referencing Christ's death, burial, and his resurrection on the third day but that could also be reading into it a little bit. We see a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Now, Cana was an incredibly small town, very close to where Jesus grew up in Nazareth. It was about four miles away. And Nathaniel, who we were just talking about earlier, who recently became one of his disciples, this is his hometown. He was Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee. And so we see them invited to this wedding, and it's possible that, this is Nathaniel, that's a good name, isn't it? Wow. That's a strong name. Wow. I'm blessed. I'm blessed by just the name. And so that's Nathaniel Scott, the great, uh, Nate, Nate, Nate the great, we love him. But uh, <laughs> I'm getting back here. What? Okay. It could have been that they were invited because this was Nathaniel's hometown. This is all of his friends and family. It's customary for you to invite everyone to it. And so that could be the case. Uh, it's also thought that they're there and got the invitation because of Mary, that the groom was related to Mary and to Jesus, which is why she takes such responsibility and is so concerned because of what happens here. Regardless, they show up to this party in Canaan. Now, weddings in historical Jewish tradition are not like our weddings today. They are radically different. Our weddings today is we plan an event. That event is typically either a morning, an afternoon, or an evening. Uh, and there's, there's the typical tradition. You cut the cake, you flower toss, a couple speeches, bada bing, bada boom. You're off and you go to your honeymoon. In Jewish culture and Jewish traditions, I mean, it was at another level. Several days of an event, it could have lasted up to a week. The consummation of the wedding happened in real time at the, the same place that the wedding ceremony was happening. 
and it was a full-on citywide party. This isn't just, you know, like a lot of people in which we even kind of did this, like to have kind of the intimate setting, the intimate wedding. Well, that's not a thing in Jewish culture. Pretty much the whole town is invited and nearing towns, friends, and families. I'm talking a significant amount of people showing up for this week-long festival with literally everyone. That is a wedding, and I love weddings. I love weddings even when it's just an evening. I would have loved these kinds of weddings. So as you can say, Jesus shows up to a party. You may be thinking, man, if I turn to Jesus, I don't get to party anymore. Come on, Jesus loves a good party, especially a week-long wedding feast. And then, as we'll see in just a minute, it, it turns up when Jesus shows up. So Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. So it says his disciples. Here we see Jesus, his mother, and the five disciples that are now following him. Now, one of the things you don't see is Joseph. You don't see him referenced here, and tradition says that it's likely that he has passed on at this point. Now, it's not necessarily relevant. There's a few things that allude to that in the text, but we know that he had passed on whenever we look ahead at Christ's death on a cross, when he looks down and he entrusts his mother to John. We know that Joseph was no longer there. So it's likely that he has lost his father at this point. I love thinking of this passage and Jesus beginning his earthly ministry and starting with something uh, as wonderful as a wedding. The very beginning, he says, you know, I, I am here on my father's assignment. I have work to do. I'm the savior of the world. I am the king of kings. And he says, he RSVPs to the wedding and says, wouldn't miss it. I'll be there and I'm bringing my friends. Weddings are a big deal, as we'll see uh, as we continue to look at this passage he doesn't overlook his special moments. Warren Wearsby says it this way, Our Lord entered into the normal experiences of life and sanctified them by his presence. Wise is that couple who invite Jesus to their wedding. Couldn't agree more. So before we uh, get to the miracle, something that I wanted to point out specifically with the disciples is that they understood his uh, identity uh, of, of who he was before they were looking for that identity to be uh, certified through a miracle. This is what we see in John, John chapter 1. We see John, uh, God given eight titles. Jesus is given eight titles in John chapter 1 alone. He's given the title of the Word, God, Life, Light, Fullness, Christ, Lord, and Lamb. And one little point of application that I want to point uh, from that truth is that the the miracle doesn't define his identity, but they do reveal his divinity. They are evidence of his glory on display. Might be, might be thinking, now I believe in God when I see a miracle. Well, we, we already know that the miracle has happened. His, his glory has already been revealed in the word. His glory has already been revealed in the fact that he has risen from the dead and that he is alive. No, no, no need for a sign and wonder to say, I believe that you are who you say that you are. He is God, and we don't need a miracle to tell us that. 
He even uh, responds to Nathaniel after he meets Nathaniel and before Nathaniel follows him. He says, I see that you're the son of God. Jesus says, do you believe because I told you I saw you under a fig tree? Do you, do you believe because I performed a miracle? Do you believe that I am who I say that I am? Um, we see this as well when Jesus rebukes the Pharisees and the Sadducees for wanting to test God to see a sign in Matthew 16, 1 through 4. But number two, Jesus the Son. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. This was not Jesus updating, this was not Mary updating Jesus on current events. By the way, you should know, wine's out. Now, this is Mary coming to Jesus, looking for a solution. I was thinking about it, even you, you could say, you know, some, some might think that she was like trying to get Jesus to, to do the miracle. I, I don't necessarily think that's what's happening here. Of course, she's known who Jesus is his whole life. She, she's not all his entire life in his childhood. It was just like, can you, can you do me a solid here, Jesus? Can you fix his problem? No, but also at the same token, He's Jesus. Anytime there was a problem, I can imagine he never had a bad solution. So why wouldn't she come to Jesus in her time of need when she says, uh, hey, wine's out, what, what you thinking? What are we gonna do about this? This is pretty, pretty tragic. Now, with this wedding lasting about a week, and with it being such a significant event, this was a travesty. The wine going out in the wedding, Party's over. No more joy. Feast and festivities are over. This was not only socially embarrassing, but in the context of the Jewish culture, this is so wild to me, it was more of like a social contract as well, meaning the bride's family could have sued the groom for not putting on a solid feast and offering enough provision for the moment. Grooms, how would you have liked that responsibility? I'm going to get sued by my bride's family if something doesn't happen soon. This is tragedy. I was trying to think of like a, a current event, like what would be this significant in a wedding right now? And I was, I was thinking, maybe, Maybe it would be like you show up to the wedding as the groom and you forgot the ring. You didn't book a DJ, which would be tragic. And you booked your honeymoon on the wrong flight all at the same time. I mean, this is the weight that the groom is feeling right now as the wine is going out. This is a big deal and this is really bad. Jesus responds in a very strange way. I think this is strong. Jesus doesn't say, hey, let's go figure something out. Hey, let's go get some more wine. No, no, no. He responds in a very strange way. He says, what has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked, my hour has not yet come. The more literal translation would say, what do you and I have in common, ma'am? Don't you know I'm about my father's business? There's a unique transition that has happened with Jesus right now, where he is saying, no longer am I under your submission. I have an assignment right now. I'm on my father's orders. My hour has not yet come.
come. It's interesting. Jesus is at at a wedding. The wine runs out. And he responds this way. So what is Jesus thinking about in this moment? Is he thinking about the party? Or is he thinking about something so much bigger? When he refers to this hour, he's referring ahead to the time when his hour would come, when he would lay down his life. And he's saying, my hour has not yet come. And this is a reference to an Old Testament prophet that there would be a significant banquet when the hour would come and the wine would flow. And he's saying, that's not this time. He was thinking on a heavenly timetable. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told his servant. Just as Mary knew to tell the servants to do whatever he says to do, so I think that wisdom is still true of us today. If you want this to go well, do whatever he says. I will say the same thing to you today. If you want this to go well, do whatever he tells you to do. Whatever you're going through, whatever struggle, whatever challenge you have, when your barrels are empty, do what he tells you to do. Trust him. It may be confusing. It may be unorthodox. But trust me, he's God. He's never had a bad idea. He's always the solution. And there's nothing he can't do. That seems like the right person to do whatever he tells you to do. The answer to our greatest challenges is found in Jesus. I think if, if we're looking at more of like a big idea, and this is found right here in the middle of the text, I think this is a big idea and a central idea of the text, is that whenever there's an issue, run to Jesus. Whenever there's a challenge in your life, go to Jesus. Miracles demand, demand recognizing his authority, which Mary does, faith in his ability to do whatever, and, which she did, and submitting to his word, which she challenged them to do. D.A. Carson said it this way about this exchange between Jesus and his mother. She approaches Jesus as a mother and is reproached. Now, I'll say this about being reproached. Him saying, woman, I do not recommend you saying that to your mother. Hey, honey, you, you, want, you want to come over? Woman. Now, in the way that we read this passage, that's kind of how it comes across. In the way it's originally written, this is not a condescending term. It's also not necessarily an endearing term. It's not an intimate term. It's not like saying mother. It's in uh, the Southern term, it's more like saying ma'am. So it's unique. It's still polite, but it's not endearing. It's more like ma'am. But it's still enough of a reproach that he doesn't call her mother. She approaches Jesus like a mother and is reproached. She responds as a believer and her faith is honored. I love that. And then finally, Jesus, the host. Now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Now, this, when I read six stone jars, in my mind, I always thought like a jar. I'm talking keggers. 30 gallons is this big. 
I wanted to find a 30-gallon just to show you. It is so wild. Six 30-gallon containers he looks at. He doesn't say, okay, we got a couple more days left in the wedding. We got, a, you know, 80 people here. He multiplies it because he's Jesus. He, can just, he just knows in advance how much they need. And All right, let's fill up a, a container should cover. No. He fills up 150 to 180 gallons worth of fine wine like that. Now, these weren't just any jars either. These were, it says in the text, it says they, they were there for Jewish purification. So these were ceremonial uh, jars used for ceremonial washings. Whenever the people in that culture would touch something unclean, they would, they would rinse themselves to make them clean. They would wash their heads. And they, would, they would try to become ceremonial clean. That's what these jars are for. And if you look a little deeper into ceremonial washings of the, of the water turning into red wine, you see that this is the water of the, law, of the law turning into the new wine of the new covenant. This is a ceremonial clean pot, which who is the only one that was perfectly clean? Jesus. You see, you see this then transition now into the new covenant. You see, there's something so much more significant than just a miraculous moment of water to wine. There's something so much bigger here. So on cue, it's time to wrap up. All right, last point. No, I'm just like, it might have been, it might have been. They were for ceremonial washings. They were the clean pots, and Jesus alone is the only clean pot. In the Old Testament, God through Moses turned water into blood as a curse. But now Jesus is turning water into wine, representing a blessing, representing a new covenant. And I think that's beautiful. An unknown minister said it this way in, in referring to Jesus, referring to his hour and seeing the jars. He said, Jesus Christ is, sipping, is sitting in the midst of all this joy, sipping the coming sorrow. I, just, I think it's important just to think about the mind of Christ, both how he's responding to this moment and, and what he does with the water. It refers to these as a sign. Not necessarily miracles, and it's not even uh, do, the word there for the miracle. It's not dunamis. It wasn't the power that was performed it, but it was a sign. And a sign is always pointing to something bigger. Isaiah 25, 6 says the Messianic kingdom would have great wine. In this passage of Jesus doing something so significant, he's revealing the generosity of his kingdom. It's so, it's so ridiculous how much wine this is, that it was not only enough for the entire town to drink for the week, but it was enough above and beyond provision-wise for this new couple to then take this fine wine and sell and live on for a season. Uh, something so significant there for me is that this is who Jesus is. The one who offers above and beyond all that we can ask, think, or imagine according to the power that works in him. This is Ephesians 3.20. 
for all generations. It says, now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask to think according to the powers that works in us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. God is a generous God who doesn't just provide what we need, but he is a generous God who wants to lavish his blessing on his children. Verse 9, when the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from. Though the servant who had drawn the water knew, he called the groom and told him, everyone set out the fine wine first, then after people are drunk, the inferior, but you have kept the fine wine until now. The head waiter, this is the one that is managing the party. He's the one that should have been in charge of making sure there was enough wine. And the groom should have been the one responsible who took, who made the provision for the wine. Both dropped the ball, and here we see Jesus step in as the host. And we see Jesus take on the responsibility of the groom. Here we see the groom receive the praise for the wine, even though it was Jesus that performed the miracle. Jesus took on the responsibility of the groom. As I said earlier, this is Jesus' first miracle. And where is it taking place? A wedding. What a picture of Christ, the bridegroom, and us, his bride, performing the first miracle. Taking on the responsibility here, he is the bridegroom. And this is a beautiful picture of that. Matthew 9, 15, Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken from them, and then they will fast. He is our bridegroom. We are his bride. There's significance. This is a sign. Jesus takes a dying party, and he turns it up. He takes something that would otherwise seem insignificant, something that could be considered minuscule, and he makes it miraculous, and he makes it massive. When Jesus shows up, ordinary becomes extraordinary. When Jesus shows up, he sanctifies the space. When Jesus shows up, anything is possible. So, what is the deal with the wine? You've got to be thinking it. Jesus turns water into wine. What is the deal with that much wine? Well, first, to understand that, you have to understand what wine represents in the Bible. Wine, in the Word of God, symbolizes joy. Now, throughout the Old Testament, drunkenness is condemned. We are not be out of our minds. We're supposed to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. But wine itself is often referenced or referred to in times of celebration, times of blessing, and it's specifically connected to joy. Jesus, oftentimes, after he would perform a miracle, he would give a little teaching afterwards. Whenever he fed the 5,000, he would say, I am the bread. Whenever he uh, did a work on the Sabbath, he would say, I am the Sabbath. And I, I wonder, we don't see the teaching after the miracle, but I wonder if Jesus taught after this miracle, he would say, when, when the world seeks joy on their own, the joy always runs out. But when I show up, when I'm a part of the story, joy always runs from now until we're with him forever in eternity. 
I keep the party going. Not only that, but the world offers the best first. It's shiny. It's bright. And it holds you just long enough to hook you, and then it starts to be distracting, and it starts to be destructive. But Jesus continually offers his best, and he provides to the end. Psalm 104 says, He causes grass to grow for the livestock. He provides crops for man to cultivate, producing food from the earth, wine that makes human hearts glad, making his face shine with oil and bread that sustains human hearts. So if you want to see the bigger storyline of what's going on here is that not only in times of challenge and in times of embarrassment and times of struggle should we run to Jesus, but when we run to Jesus, he shows up. When he shows up, he performs miraculous signs. And when he does, he doesn't just do a little, he does abundantly above all that we could ask, think, or imagine. And this produces an overflow of joy in our life. So if you're going through a hard time, depend on Jesus and let Jesus transform your your life, transform who you are, transform your circumstance, and then live out of the abundance and the overflow of a joy-filled life in Jesus. This is the idea here. The more dependent we are on Him, the more we run to Him, the more joy we get to experience in Him. The more we try to do it on our own, the more empty our jars will be. And that, my friends, is the reality that many of us are living in today. Some of you are living in the empty jars. That's me. And my jars have been empty for a long time. And it's been destructive. And it's been embarrassing. And I have not been okay. I'm needing that miracle today. I'm needing that transformative power of God to change my life. He can do it in a moment. It's actually what he does. It's who he is. We see that he is the son of God. We see his identity revealed. John chapter 1. He's the coming Messiah. He's the savior of the world. He is Jesus. He's the son of God. Then we see what he can do. He can redeem the moment. He can restore that which is broken. Then we see what he offers. He offers us not just salvation for a moment and then everything in your life stays the same. No, he wants to make all things new and he wants to give you abundant life. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But he says, I have come so that you may have life and so that you can have it abundant. Anybody need joy in their life? Run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. And he'll fill you up to overflowing. There are communion cups under your seat. If you want, go ahead and and grab those. And if you would, just hold it. We're going to stand up in just a second and We're going to go into a song. I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond. We're going to have a time of communion, and I think it's 
I think it's a perfect day to have communion. Uh, talking about the wine and what Jesus offers and the day that he died on a cross for our sins. We are a Christian church and we're very proud of it. We love Jesus. And our hope and our prayer is that you can know and you can love him too. Jesus loves you. I don't know if you've ever had anybody tell you that before, but the God that is right now alive in heaven, who was risen from the dead, who died on a cross for your sins, sin equals death, a death that you and I deserve. Jesus took our place for it, and he stood in the gap for us, and he died instead of us. Jesus didn't just die for you, he died as you. And he stood in your place as the atoning Savior. And now, he is seated with his Father at the right hand, and he's saying, come to me. Come to me. For we are saved from our sins, not through our achievements, not through being a good person, but through receiving his grace. Scripture teaches us that for by grace you are saved through faith, and that it is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works so that nobody can boast. It's a gift. Grace is God's unconditional love. Grace is his unmerited favor over your life. And the good news is, you don't have to earn it. You couldn't even if you tried. You can only receive it. So I want to give you an opportunity to receive God's love today. I'm going to say a prayer of salvation. I don't believe that the, the words that are going to be on the screen or the words that you say is it, it, that that is the thing that saves you. But I do believe it is the posture of your heart in total surrender and dependence on God and that these words are a public declaration of what your heart's already saying. And so if you want to make Jesus Lord of your life today, would you say this prayer with me? You can uh, see it on the screen or you can repeat it. I'm going to say, Jesus, I acknowledge that I need you. I confess that I have sinned against you. I believe that God has raised you from the dead. And right now, I say, Jesus is Lord. Thank you for forgiving me. By your grace, I am saved. And by your power, I am set free. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more, or if you'd like to join us on a Sunday, head on over to pinewoodboulder.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it. And if you'd like to be notified every time we post new content, then subscribe. And remember, just keep coming back.